What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, nearly two tough years behind us. It's time to talk it out with podcaster Arthur Brooks. Our workplaces and our schools, these are not just economic arrangements. These are social arrangements. People are lonely. We're facing a mental health crisis a wave of depression and anxiety like we've never seen before. And a big trading card deal, Fanatics CEO Michael Rubin on buying tops. We looked at this as the best brand in trading cards, give us a bunch of infrastructure to have, to be able to go more quickly, to be able to start four years early with baseball, have global capabilities. Plus, teachers taking a stand in Chicago and the cost of staying safe. Prices for COVID test kits are up. But who needs them? New guidance from the CDC. We also realize the reality is that you're not going to find a test and you can't shut down the entire economy. So basically, this is the week that we've decided, yeah, we can't do this. It's Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. Squawk Pod with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin begins right now. Stand under by in three, two, one. Cue Andrew. Here's what's making headlines. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has now set an official date uh, before Congress uh, next week. His renomination hearing before the Senate Banking Committee has been set for next Tuesday. The panel has also scheduled a hearing for Fed Governor Lel Brainerd, who's been nominated as vice chair. Her hearing, of course, is going to take place a week from uh, tomorrow. Nevada is now the latest state to join a proposed $26 billion opioid settlement. Uh, the deal would resolve lawsuits against Johnson & Johnson, as well as drug distributors McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen. They've been accused of fueling a nationwide opioid crisis. Nevada was one of the first states that had not yet signed on to that settlement. And check out shares of Beyond Meat. They're surging in pre-market trading following news that KFC will roll out the company's plant-based fried chicken substitute, Nationwide. That's going to happen next week after a successful test run in a number of U.S. markets. There's also a battle that's brewing in Chicago over remote learning this morning. Public school classes are canceled today. This comes after the teachers union's members had threatened to stay home in a bid to try and force instruction online during the COVID surge. The union said conditions in the classrooms are unsafe and 73 percent of the members voted in favor of pausing in-person instruction. But the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, said reverting to online schooling was unacceptable and unnecessary. I cannot stand her in good conscience as mayor of this city, as someone who has a responsibility, a solemn obligation to make sure that we do everything possible to set our children up for success, which begins with education as a great equalizer, and tell you that it makes sense to shut down an entire system. The mayor's office decided to call off classes altogether, keeping the buildings open for emergency child care rather than return to virtual instruction. I I also saw they put out that they'd be uh, delivering food to those locations, too. If you wanted to pick up a breakfast or a lunch, you could still go to the schools and get that. 
Late yesterday, the CDC amending its controversial COVID isolation guidance, declining to add a testing requirement. Now, the agency had been criticized for cutting its quarantine time from 10 days, as you remember, to five days without requiring a negative test to end quarantine. In yesterday's update, the CDC said people who have recovered from the virus and isolated for at least five days can take a rapid test if they want to, but they don't have to. Now, the new guidance comes as case counts hit record highs and at-home tests are so very hard to come by thanks to the surge in demand. You want me to go on a rant? Oh, bring it. I'm ready. <laughs> the CDC, I mean, at this point, the, the CDC, I don't understand how Fauci can go on TV and say, well, we really should do it this way. We know we should do it this way, but we can't do it this way. So that's one side. I don't, and, and it really just undermines the credibility of the CDC. And it, it pains me to, to undermine the credibility of the CDC in part because I am, as you know, um, as far from being an anti-vaxxer or an anti-mask or anything else, but it just gives credence and, and support to anybody who has uh, theories and doesn't believe the science on one end. On the second side of the businesses, Walmart, Kroger, okay. everybody else, I know that the White House is trying to force you, if, uh, force them, or was before, forcing them to sell at a cost. You know what? If they wanted to do the right thing for society right now, they would continue to sell at a cost. But can That's I just say that, wait, back up, back up, back up, back up. They've moved it back. I bought on Walmart this morning. I bought six tests, which is the max that you can buy for $14.99. They have moved it back since yesterday. I, I, I saw this at about 4.30 this morning because I check every morning when I wake up because <clears throat> it's so hard to find the test. And by the way, just on, on the point of Walmart, I will say Walmart's been doing this for months. Yes, it came at pressure from the White House. But they've been selling it at $14.99 at cost for months. When they moved it back up to $19.99, that's still well below where everybody else has been selling it. If you try and get those very same tests at CVS or at Walgreens, they've been oh, $23.99 throughout the entire pandemic for all of this. There's worse than that. There's gouging going on all over this country. You go online if you Correct. actually want these tests. They're available for $50, $60, $70, $80. And, and, and by the way, there are also attorney generals, state attorney is, generals like Letitia James who are going after companies like that for but, gouging. But let me, let's Having put the, said let's, that. Wait a second. Let's, put, let's yeah. put the blame back where it belongs. This is on the administration for not preparing for the last year to get to the position where we could be in this testing. And, and that's not because there weren't people coming to them and saying, you need to do this, you need to prepare for this. I've been buying these tests since the summer, and they've been hard to come by, but I've been stocking up on them because I know that if you get a situation where somebody doesn't feel good right. in the house, it's probably best to test before you go back out. I have you know, vulnerable people who I've been trying to protect to make sure I test before we see any of them. Um, so I've been trying to hold to hold on to these things for months. I've known since this summer that these tests are hard to come by. I'm not sure why nobody oh, in their ivory uh, towers look, noticed this, because you're working in look, a White House where everybody gets free testing every day. Free. First order of business is to say that the government has missed has missed this on the testing front from the very beginning. I thought when we were talking in March of 2020 with Scott Gottlieb, that testing actually was going to be the answer. I know the people in Florida, uh, not the people in Florida, but the Surgeon General in Florida there doesn't seem to believe that because, as we know, just two days ago, he, he thinks the testing but doesn't make sense. That's a whole separate the, order. That's a deal. whole separate what we've issue. Done this week, what we've done this week is basically concede that we're giving up, that we can't win this fight, that the battle's over. Um, we know that the science doesn't necessarily say you should go out in five days with or without a test. We know, based on the latest information we've seen from the UK, that a third of people, of 35% of people, are still contagious after five days. Right. Um, but we also realize the reality is that you're not going to find a test and you can't shut down the entire economy. So basically, this is the week that we've decided um, 
yeah, we, we, we can't do this. We were going to, we told you when this administration came in that it was going to be all about the science. It's not because we can't do that. We can't live in society and shut everything down and deal with it at this point. I, I would say that this is the week we've basically decided it's over and because of the messaging coming out from the CDC. I understand why the CDC is doing this, but the messaging is horrible. And it wasn't until the last hour when I was listening to Brian Sullivan interview a doctor from a hospital in Newark talking about where their problems are right now that you understand the CDC guidance. The CDC should be telling us exactly right. what that doctor was saying, right, which is basically, of, uh, we just, don't have enough staff. Our problem at this point is not the number of beds that we have. We don't have enough staff. And 60% of the people who are in the hospital, he said right now, in that hospital with COVID are, are there. We, they only found out they had COVID because they tested them because they test everybody in the hospital. That's not the reason they're in the hospital. There are still people let, let who are sick and coming in. You should not take this lightly. But when that's the case, and the problem is, is we have staffing problems. We can't take care of these people because you can't come in in less than five days if you've tested positive and basically everybody has tested positive. That's the situation that we're dealing with. Not being able to run me, hospitals because you don't have staffing, not being able to run airlines because you don't have staffing. And so we've like thrown up our hands and said, forget it. We can't do anything else. If you'd indulge me just on the second point, though, which is, and I know, and I know you said you, you, you went to Walmart.com and, and were successful at 14, 14 bucks or whatever it was this morning. The, I think that there's an opportunity for the Kroger's of the world, for the Walmart's of the world, and frankly, for everybody else who is a, a retailer to try to continue to sell these things um, at cost. I'm you just know, saying it, the people it, who are getting yelled you know, at, there's Walmart's a lot of and Kroger's are the ones Walmart who have been sells. doing it right for months. There's every other retailer out there who has not been doing it right. Target's not even selling these things and hasn't bothered to try. I'm I'm not, this is not a critique of Walmart this morning. This is to say the the opportunity set for Doug McMillan, for the folks at Kroger, for the folks at CVS, for the folks at every retailer that has access to these things that that sells them, the opportunity for them at a time when they talk constantly about their their responsibility to society and their role in the neighborhood and their role with communities, the opportunity is for them to sell it at cost. So, yes, but God I bless think Walmart's Walmart already for done doing that. what they've Before done thus far. If, if we're going to say Walmart's that, but you know what? Continue morning, to do Andrew, it. It's not because if they you ask them to do, to do it, it. They did it this morning. I think that's exactly that what they well did be, but they announced anybody. it. That, Becky, they announced they're doing something else. So uh, I think but I, I, I don't, will tell I, I don't, you, I don't this morning, got, yesterday it was 1999. This morning it was 14. Bucks. I don't know if you got lucky like, or I not. I think they've already gotten the message before you. We're going to leave it there. But uh, that's my, my hope is my, that companies my problem with do, all of this do is need is that the Some of these companies have done a better job at providing things that we need to get through this pandemic than anybody else has. So I, I am lax to scream at some of these guys. Would it be nice to see them doing it? I'm not, sure. I'm not screaming at, at, but, at Doug McMillan. I'm saying, I'm saying Doug and everybody else should continue apace. That's what I'm saying. And I, but I, I'm not surprised everybody else you don't, has don't want to do that. It's like, no, I, not everybody else has been. My point is that CVS, Walgreens, all these other companies have not been doing it to this point. You know, like, Correct. Sure. Would and it I'm be say, great to see them get on board? Absolutely. But I, the, the people who are getting screamed at right now are the Walmarts and the Kroger's because I've been watching online. Um, they're the ones getting attacked, and they've been the best behavior, the best behaved ones to this point. Coming up, why are we so unhappy? Americans feeling stuck, stuck in a pandemic, stuck indoors, while stocks are near all-time highs. Arthur Brooks, host of the Art of Happiness podcast, joins us next on Squawk Pod. You never know. You're not going to go to school. You don't know if you're ever going to see your colleagues ever again. There's a ton of data that shows that uncertainty is one of the greatest sources of human unhappiness.
Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. And today we're asking, why so sad, America? Here's Becky Quick with more. A recent survey of voters by CNBC and Change Research showed that the economy is the nation's top issue right now at 46 percent. The survey also finding that 60 percent of Americans disapprove of President Biden's handling of the economy. This negative view comes despite the unemployment rate declining for the past year, now at 4.2 percent. Average hourly earnings also up nearly 5 percent, and stocks, as you probably know, at record levels. The Dow at an all-time high once again yesterday, up roughly 20 percent since Biden took office. So why this disconnect? What's happening in the economy? What are Americans feeling? What are they seeing? Joining us right now to talk more about it is Arthur Brooks. He's American Enterprise Institute President Emeritus, and he's also a Harvard professor and senior fellow, contributing writer for The Atlantic and host of the How to Build a Happy Life podcast. Um, Arthur, you may be the person, the perfect person to talk about this, especially given what you've been talking about in terms of happiness. Why are we not happy with what's happening right now? What's, what's gone wrong? Uh, nice to see you, Becky, and good morning. Good morning to everybody. Um, I'd like to report that the, the country's getting happier, but the truth of the matter is, notwithstanding some of the really good economic uh, uh, data that you just showed, the country is actually going in the wrong direction with respect to happiness. And one of the biggest reasons for this has to do with certainty. Um, you know, people are taking it out on Biden and the Biden administration. And one of the reasons for that is that w- when Joe Biden was running for president, his big promise was that things were going to be calmer, things were going to be more peaceful, there was going to be certainty that we were going to have an economy that was going to be running in a very certain, very stable way, that the coronavirus epidemic was going to be under control. And, and this is just, he couldn't promise these things, and yet he did. And, and now, well, what do we have? We have inflation, we have a lot of churn, we have a lot of people quitting their jobs. And, and most of all, we have a coronavirus epidemic that is, is rage, apparently raging out of control, whether or not it's as big a medical problem as we see right now is another matter. And this makes it look like, in fact, he is not in control in the way that he did. And that makes a lot of people feel insecure and indeed unhappy. Yeah, I think it's that too. I think it's because of what we're seeing with, with COVID, with Omicron spreading everywhere, shutting things down potentially, whether that be school, whether that be businesses, seeing the, the crazy lines we've seen. I actually just asked in the commercial break when these poll results were taken, because I think it's in large part that too, um, just what's happening. Um, December 17th through the 20th or when these poll results were taken. And that's when the Omicron spike came. And that came despite the vaccinations, despite this promise that we thought we were getting to the end of this, this never ending pandemic. And despite like the crazy messaging that's coming from the CDC, you're right. If if you're feeling uncertain about things, not knowing what's coming next, then you don't really care what's happened over the last 12 months. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that, you know, everybody's wondering, why are we having this great resignation? Why are we having all of this turmoil with respect to maybe just a few more weeks of the schools being closed? Well, our workplaces and our schools, these are not just economic arrangements. These are social arrangements. Seventy percent of people say their best friends are at work. Fifty eight percent of people say that they wouldn't quit their jobs for higher pay if it meant leaving their friends. Well, when we've taken away the entire social context, people are lonely. We're facing a mental health crisis a wave of depression and anxiety like we've never seen before because of the way that we are not returning back to normal. And any little thing that says, we don't know what's going on, this might come back, there's another wave, the scientists don't know what's going on, the CDC doesn't know what's going on, we're getting very indecisive direction on this. People are going to take it out of the president. What's most important? The, the economics of what's going on in our country. But that's not emotionally the basis on which we're actually judging things, the negativity that we in which we find ourselves. 
You are like our, our couch psychiatrist this morning. I, I, everything you are saying makes an awful lot of sense. Um, so what happens? How, how do we get our arms around this? Because, by the way, I got to say, we are not prepared. We weren't prepared for this wave. We don't have the testing. We don't have the monoclonal antibodies. It, it's pretty disheartening when you think, okay, I thought we'd be done with this by now. What happened? Yeah. How, how do we get things back in control? Well, part of it is not making the false promise that we're going to uh, beat the, the, the coronavirus epidemic once and for all. The truth of the matter is it's going to become an endemic problem. I mean, we, we all listen to our friend Scott Gottlieb all the time on this show. He's the best on this. And the truth of the matter is that the coronavirus epidemic is going to be something that we live with, much like many other viruses. And we, we will continuously develop new ways to deal with it. It will become less deadly, less scary. And we need somebody who helps us get back to normal life, notwithstanding COVID. Instead of saying, you never know if your kids are you're not going to go to school and you're going to have to take time off work. You never know if your office is going to shut down. You don't know if you're ever going to see your colleagues ever again. We just don't know. The don't know is incredibly disconcerting. There's a ton of data that shows that uncertainty is one of the greatest sources of human unhappiness. If we had leaders at the CDC and we had leaders in the White House and, and in the Congress and at the state houses around the country, some states are doing really well. Here in Massachusetts, we have a great governor who's doing a good job on this, but message this thing to saying, we are going to have to live with this and we will, we will get back to normal life as best we possibly can so that you can get on with your life. That's the kind of messaging that we need. That will raise, that will raise happiness a lot. The Washington Post reporting just a couple of hours ago, earlier this morning, that Democrats and Republicans are discussing uh, the idea of some additional COVID emergency funding. I think most of it, according to the Post, would, would be targeted towards businesses, maybe the restaurants, the gyms, uh, entertainment venues that are, are suffering the most uh, through some of these changes that we've seen. Is that the right move from leadership in Washington? Yeah, the whole idea of making it easier for people to close, uh, making it so that we can, you know, another patch on this thing. And again and again, as if this were still 2020, I don't think this is the right way to go. We have to help people understand that there are ways that we can live with the coronavirus epidemic, that we're trying to make it as not dangerous as it can possibly be so that it's not scary and people can get on with ordinary routines, whether it's working in person and, and most importantly, sending kids back to school. It's crazy that we're not sending children back to school uh, again in, in January of 2022 um, is really disheartening for people. So I think the way that we need to deal with this is all efforts put toward uh, as the closest thing we can get to normal life. Hey, Arthur, uh, two questions. They're sort of capitalistic style questions. Uh, one is, look, and, and you may disagree with this. My view is if we're gonna spend government funds at all, and I'm not sure we need to at this point, but if we are, it should be on things like testing because that could allow restaurants and schools uh, and our children to go to school and, and everybody to remain open in ways that perhaps uh, people are either nervous about or, or, or genuinely shouldn't be. Um, so that's, that's one piece. The second piece, though, that I was going to ask you about, because we were talking about testing before, is you have a situation now uh, where, A, we don't have enough tests to go around, so we have to make more of them, and B, the cost of them is, is too high. And where you either lay the blame or say, here's an opportunity for the Abbots of the world to actually do this either at cost or at a much more, at a much lower price or to be subsidized by the government and the retailers, uh, which had been trying to sell this at cost, which by the way, has benefited them because a lot of folks had been going to the Walmarts and Walgreens of the world uh, in part to get the cheaper, cheaper tests and then buying lots of stuff while they were there. So there was a, there was a capitalistic uh, view of what they were doing to some degree. Um, 
whether they should be keeping their prices lower through this pandemic uh, to help the to help society. Yeah, well, I you know I agree with you that testing is really the way to go, and and you know cheap testing and and making it as reliable as it can possibly be. Right now, it's not very reliable. The most reliable test is the PCR test. You have to wait days and days to get them, and they cost hundreds of dollars to get, which means you can't use them for travel. The antigen testing is less reliable, and yet that's what you need to be able to get it on the same day. And and by the way, there's also a shortage of these things. I mean, the, the, the problems are manifold in these. So I agree with you that we actually need better testing so that we can go toward our key goal, which is normality and ordinary day-to-day life. How do we do that? We're going to do that with, you're right, capitalism. We're not going to do that with government control. We're going to make it much, much easier for people to produce different kinds of tests and, 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 and distribute them in different ways. The greatest thing about capitalism is that places like Walgreens and CVS can figure out that if you sell these things for cost, which is 30 bucks or whatever it is, people come in, they do go out with all their other stuff that they actually need. It becomes a loss leader. That's the oldest consumer idea, retail idea in the book. So look, there's there's nothing that you said that even sounds remotely wrong to me under the circumstances. We need to get the bureaucratic hassles and, and all these thickets out of the way so that we have more tests that are on the market and let capitalism do its job to get it out there to the public that really, really wants it so they can Get on but, with their lives. But Arthur, the, the, the conundrum right now is to get, to get an antigen test down to a, a, a dollar a piece. Look, if, if you could actually get them down to a dollar a piece or given out for free it, and, and they were available at scale, we'd all, everybody would be in restaurants. Everybody, all the kids would be back in school. And yes, we can debate uh, you know, antigen tests versus PCR. But if you use the antigen test, literally, you could use it twice a day. I think you would actually be in a completely different world. The problem yeah, I agree. is, I completely I, agree. I don't totally know agree. whether capitalism unto itself can get the price down to those type of levels. Yeah. Well, well wait a I second. Mean, what about the wait, wait a second? What about the the federal dollars that have already been supposedly spent on this? There was twelve billion dollars that was supposed to be allocated to the schools to step up testing. I haven't seen any testing that's been done on any level like that. What what happened to all of the money that we set aside for this? And why weren't we prepared? Because by the way, the, the government is now talking about these five hundred million tests that they're still working on the contracts with them to try and get worked out. By the time those tests are here, first of all, it's not enough. There's three hundred thirty million people in the United States, so that's one and a half tests per person. Second of all, it's going to be have run its course through the country before we get access to any of those tests. We were not prepared two years into this pandemic. Yeah, it turns out that when you when you pour a whole bunch of kerosene um, like that into government bureaucracies, I've mixed my metaphors here. When you pour a bunch of money into you know these government bureaucracies and 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 they're not accountable for it, you're not going to get what you wanted. There's no big surprise from that. But you know the country was effectively in a panic. Here, do all this. Here's a ton of money do testing, make sure the kids can go back to school. And then guess what? You know, we're two years in and we're still not ready for the testing because that's not exactly how government bureaucracies work. They, they're not fleet of foot. You know, they're, when you don't, you don't actually lead them to do exactly what you want them to do, who knows how the, how the money's going to actually be, be spent. I don't know how the money's been spent, but not the way we want it. Yeah, like, why don't we have a COVID czar? Somebody, why don't we have a COVID czar? Somebody who's responsible for seeing this stuff, taking action, making it work out almost, you know, like, like we would have a czar for any other sort of military operation or anything else that we actually cared about. Why isn't there some central point of focus that everything is running through? Yeah, no, that's true. And, it, and the truth is that, that, that schools, for example, and their testing and the procedures are different in different states. And this is one of the good things. This is one of the things that Americans are looking at. Now, one of the really interesting aspects of the Great Resignation is also the Great Migration. And so we've 
this in the census and the places that are actually people are moving from big lumbering bureaucratic high tax states to the places that seem to have a little bit more normality in life, normality in the schools and more freedom for people and freedom for people to behave in their ordinary lives. And, you know, if we wanted the whole country to be free and be well, then we would actually have this cheap, abundant testing exactly like what we're talking about here. And, and the, the school bureaucracies would become completely accountable for their funds. In the absence of that, people are going to take the closest thing they can get, which is free states with lower taxes that are that are more or less trying to function as close to normal as they possibly can. People are voting with their feet. And why they're voting this way with their feet? Because they want to be happy. We all want to be happy. That much we can definitely agree on. I don't know how we get there, but uh, hopefully we get a little closer towards it soon. Arthur, great to see you. Um, nice to see we'll you, too. you back for another, another therapy session soon. <laughs> Let's be in person. We got to be in person one of these days. Yeah. I'll hold my breath. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, Fanatics buys the Topps trading cards business, a shakeup in an industry ripe for revolution, and a vision from Fanatics CEO Michael Rubin. The card business has grown a lot by luck, not by a strategy to really grow the business. We think the number one thing that I wake up and go to bed thinking about is how can we demonstrably grow this industry? I'd like it to be many, many times the size of the business that it is today. Looks like he's on his way to success. We're back after this. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Our final story today, let's make a deal. Fanatics, the sports merchandise e-commerce company that's been snapping up pretty much all the sports verticals it can get its hands on, has officially bought the Topps trading cards business. Last summer, Topps had plans of its own. It was going to debut on the public markets via SPAC to breathe new life into this legacy industry. But then Fanatics swooped in and secured Topps' key trading card license before Topps could renew its own deal with Major League Baseball. The league has been a cash cow and a longtime partner. The first Topps baseball cards were printed in 1949. the cornerstone of Topps' reputation in the trading card world, gone. So, the SPAC deal fell apart, and now, about six months later, Fanatics has bought Topps' trading card business outright and is in position to start manufacturing and distributing all cards for Topps partners, from the MLB to Formula One, Major League Soccer, Disney, Star Wars, immediately. The other big name in trading cards is Panini, they handle the NFL and the NBA, but not for long. Fanatics has a deal to take over those partnerships too by 2026. And by that time, the global trading cards business will likely be worth about $98 billion. Fanatics CEO Michael Rubin joined Andrew today for an exclusive live interview about the Topps deal and where the massive and still private Fanatics goes from here. Michael, it's great to see you. Happy New Year. Uh, I called you a stone cold killer yesterday uh, when we were talking about this deal because I thought it was so, you know, from a deal perspective, this is like deal making uh, in a remarkable way. You, you managed to, to get this license with the MLB, swoop in before Tops was able to actually do their SPAC and also get their own deal in place. They'd had a deal in place for decades and now you're buying Tops. So let's just even just reverse a little bit 
and, and talk about how you even decided to do this and strategically how you thought about it. Because I have to assume you went into it thinking, okay, if I get the license first, then I could go make a separate deal with Tops. Well, let me first, good morning, happy new years. And I want to say, I think of myself more as a sweet, nice, kind individual than a stone cold killer. But, you know, the way we really think about this is what's in the best interest of the fan, in this case, the collector, and also the sports properties that we work with. So we're always thinking about how can we reinvent a business that's going to be better for all the constituencies involved. When we do that, in the case of the trading card business, what we did in our original merchandise business that we call Fanax Commerce, we will go back and buy different pieces of the business because we think that's a way to get to scale and bring in pieces that we need more quickly. So it's not unusual for us to say, hey, we've got a new vision, a big idea. It's going to be better for the fan, better for the collector, better for the sports properties, and we will buy pieces to move more quickly. And that's exactly what we did here. Now, certainly in the case of Tops, we looked at this as the best brand in trading cards, give us a bunch of infrastructure to have to be able to go more quickly, um, to be able to start four years earlier with baseball, have global capabilities. So it really did give us a bunch of um, expertise, the team to move more quickly. That's something we're very excited about. And, and just so I understand, in terms of branding, you know, I, th I think there was a view originally that you might try to brand these as Fanatics cards, but now you have this Tops brand. So how's that going to work? Yeah, the, 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 the brand on the trading cards is absolutely going to be Tops. Tops is the best brand in trading cards. They've been in business for 70 plus years. Collectors love the brands. One of the things we want to do is have the continuity of the Tops brand, um, not only for baseball trading cards, but as you know, we also at the same time made deals with the NBA Players Association, the NFL Players Association. And we think Tops again, is the best brand in trading cards will be great um, for collectors. In terms of uh, the price, you know, we were talking yesterday, I think there was a, a view when the, when the deal first came out that maybe you had effectively been able to get an uh, 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 undercut the Tops price in terms of what they were going to get in the IPO or, or in their SPAC. I went back and looked at it. They were about to get about a little over a billion dollars. Half their business was Bazooka. Half their business is Tops uh, and Bazooka and, 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 and some of the, uh, the other collectible piece. So $500 million is actually somewhat in, in, this, in a similar place. I asked why you, why you were willing to pay that price in part because clearly they no longer had the license in two or three years from now. Yeah. For the baseball so first off, yeah. So, so first off, the way we like to think about these things is remain cash flow for the duration of a contract. And Tops had four years left with baseball. So we'd say, how much money is the business going to make over the next four years? Tax effect. That's kind of um, a logical approach. I'll tell you that when um, Michael Eisner and MDP reached out to us, they were very fear and thoughtful. They said, look, we want the Tops brand to continue. We want this to be great for our employees. We think this could be a really good foundational part of your business. And we very quickly got to an arrangement that I think made sense for everybody. Um, and look, I think they got to a good place. They still have not only the candy business, but they also have the gift card business as well. I think two exciting businesses. And I think we paid a price that they were happy with, that we were happy with. It really worked for everybody to allow us to start four years earlier. So I think this really was a win-win deal for everybody. What do you think, if we talk about the card business five years from now, what does it look like in the Fanatics world? How is it different? Yeah. So first, I think the card business has grown a lot by luck, not by a strategy to really grow the business. We think the number one thing that I wake up and go to bed thinking about is how can we demonstrably grow this industry? Um, you know, 
I'd like it to be many, many times the size of the business uh, that it is today. And it's already had great growth, but I think there could be great growth going forward. So the first thing is, how can we really market this industry? How can we grow this industry? How can we make this a much bigger business for everybody involved? And then I think in general for the collector, um, you know, certainly at our core, we are a more direct-to-consumer company. You think about uh, not only selling cards on a primary basis, you know, some of them direct-to-consumer. Now, obviously, the hobby shops are still critically important to us. The hobby shops have really helped make this business, and they really have created this business. They're always going to be a vital part of the business forever. Um, but we think about the secondary marketplace today. That's a business that takes place, um, you know, not from the IP companies, the leagues, or the players' associations. I think it's important for all of us to participate in that. We think about other business. Can you insure a card? Can you um, finance a card? Can you store a card? There are so many services that a collector wants to get in one place and also a much bigger business. So I think the most important thing is this will be a much bigger business supported by a tremendous amount of marketing, and that'll make everybody more successful in the industry. Everything you just described sounded like the physical world of cards. So let's talk a little bit about the digital world of cards. How much does that play into it, the, the new universe of NFTs? Yeah. So, so first, I think both physical and digital cards are going to be incredibly important. I think they're going to work together. You know, there's physical cards that get sold direct to consumer the same way we sell a jersey direct to consumer or a hat direct to consumer. And then certainly the NFT business, I think, you know, I, I like to make fun of myself. A year ago, I barely knew what an NFT was. This year, we'll have a massive business in NFTs. Uh, certainly, these products are going to come together. The thing that's been so interesting is both are growing so well together. And that's what we're so excited about. The physical trading card business is having tremendous growth. Well, the NFT business is also having, you know, material um, revenue. Because obviously it's going to have huge growth because it's a brand new business, but the revenue is actually pretty material as well. So, and that's when you look at the, even the revenue of tops, you've seen great growth over the last couple of years. And we're projecting again, very good growth this year and for the, you know, continually. Right. And then finally, let, let me just pivot. Uh, you're an owner of the 76ers, obviously. Your whole business is around a lot of leagues that need to play in person. What are you seeing right now in terms of traffic uh, inside stadiums, traffic to your sites as a result of this? You know, obviously, some of the some of the best players are not playing right now uh, because they're getting sick. It's it's changing the ratings. What what how's that how's that changing the dynamic right now? Yeah, I've been amazed. Probably the best example I could give you is we do operate about 50 venues at Fanatics. And I've been amazed just how strong the business is there. If you look at not only the revenue per um, uh, customer, what we call per caps, or the total revenue, it's been really, really strong. So I think, um, you know, the world's pretty resilient. And certainly, you know, COVID's been really difficult for everybody, but the business seems to continue on stronger than ever. We're also a investor in LIDS. Uh, their business, they have 1,200 stores, has been tremendous. So I think when I look overall and I talk to other retailers, I look at the business that we're involved with, I look at the retail business that we operate at, at Fanatics, all of them are very strong uh, in spite of the difficult times that we're going through right now. Michael Rubin, uh, congratulations on the deal. I'm going uh, to go to my parents' house to the basement to look through all my, my old tops cards. I, I, I need you getting that inventory, card. getting ready yeah. to sell it in our marketplace. I need you to... to making your, uh, taking that, that salary of yours and investing in financial assets of trading cards. So I, I need you in the game with us. Uh, I, I've, I've, got, I've got some cards. My kids want me to sell my cards, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if we're going to do it yet. Anyway, Michael, I want your kids selling you. and you buying. <laughs> they'll, they'll like that. They'll like that. Thanks, Mike. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. 
Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Listen to Squawk Pod wherever you download podcasts. Have a great day, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.